0: Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest, is, my guest is Michael Gentithis, Assistant Professor at the University of Akron School of Law. We will discuss his article, Suspicionless Witness Stops, The New Racial Profiling, which will be published in the Harvard Civil Rights, Civil Liberties Law Review. So welcome to the program, Mike. Thank you, and thanks for having me. Yeah, no, my pleasure. Um, This was a really uh, interesting paper, also a really sobering paper, because I had no clue that this was happening, and it's really, really disturbing. So for listeners who, like me, were unaware of this issue, maybe you could just start by explaining to people what is a suspicionless witness stop? Like, What are the police doing, and what are the courts letting them get away with? Right. So the paper is
1: about stops that officers make of individuals on the basis that they think that individual has witnessed another crime. They don't actually think the person they're stopping has committed a crime. They have no probable cause or reasonable suspicion to think they're guilty of anything, but they justify the stop on the grounds that this might be a witness to another crime that remains unsolved. And so all they suggest they need to do is sort of balance the reasonableness of the stop, how intrusive the stop is with the seriousness of the crime. And the the paper grew out of um, some cases I had seen when I was practicing as an appellate defender in Chicago, where officers would stop an individual on the grounds that he or she had seen another crime in the area. And then, of course, in the course of the conversation, incriminating evidence about the person stopped would reveal itself and end up in a conviction.
0: So I, I wonder if you could like just describe a scenario in which this actually occurred, just to kind of make it concrete for people to understand exactly what it is uh, that police are doing and yeah.
1: how- The case that I open the paper with is uh, an individual riding his bicycle a few miles west of Wrigley Field. Um, it's middle of the summer, late afternoon- And he himself has a totally clean record. He's a teenager getting ready for a senior year in high school. Officers uh, with guns blazing and and full regalia on uh, pull him over to the side of the road, stop him, and ask him for his name, begin patting him down, and want to know if he has seen a recent crime in the area. And in the course of patting him down, they uncover an illegal firearm in his pocket. And their argument is that they can introduce that recovered firearm at trial. It's permissible for them constitutionally to have conducted this stop, even though they didn't suspect that individual of any wrongdoing, simply because this was a brief stop of a witness to talk uh, talk to him about a potential crime he might have seen, even though he himself did nothing
0: wrong. So the hard thing for me to understand about this is what's the constitutional basis for the officers to search him at all if they don't have any suspicion that he's been involved in criminal activity? So it is kind of an end around
1: what is popularly popularly known as a Terry stop and frisk, which would require reasonable suspicion that the person you're stopping is uh, about to commit a crime and potentially armed to conduct that later frisk. What the suggestion is here is that these stops are not like a stop and frisk. They're analogous to a police checkpoint. Uh, A case called Illinois versus Lidster suggested that officers could set up a police checkpoint Ask individual drivers if they had witnessed a crime that occurred on the same road a week earlier. In that case, there had been a hit and run around rush hour at a particular time and place. And so, officers one week later, who had no leads in that hit and run case, set up a checkpoint to try to ask everyone passing by 15 to 20 seconds worth of questions about that hit and run. And the argument to justify those kinds of checkpoints is that it's a brief encounter, it's in public. Uh, Everyone can see that it's not being uh, discriminatorily applied on a single individual. And of course they are after witnesses to a crime, not individuals they suspect of the crime themselves. And in that case, officers eventually found a drunk driver passing through the checkpoint, but the Supreme court approved that kind of checkpoint again, for the reasons I stated that it was, that it was generalized rather than particularized on one individual. The analogy that, um, Prosecutors and appellate prosecutors have tried to draw is that this individualized stop is also focused on uncovering a witness. And so the same balancing reasonableness test should apply rather than the Terry requirements for a stop and frisk, which would require reasonable suspicion of this individual's criminal activity.
0: Well, so I'm seeing an awful lot of daylight between a police checkpoint on a road stopping people for a few seconds and detaining and physically searching people kind of willy-nilly just because you say that maybe they know something about a crime like how do we get from a to b here
1: again i think what the 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 analogy that state appellate prosecutors would make and the mistake that some courts in analyzing this problem have made is to focus on the ends to suggest that okay, if a checkpoint for witnesses is okay, then a stop for witnesses should be okay as well, as long as it's reasonable under that same balancing test. The fact that you're after witnesses on that argument is what's important, not the means through which it's done. But as you pointed out correctly, the means here are entirely different. When you have that kind of uh, broad checkpoint that's generalized, uh, there isn't any suggestion that the you know the weight of police authority is coming down on an individual in maybe an arbitrary way. And part of what I analogize, analogized to is really excellent analysis from Barry Friedman in the paper that that one of the reasons a programmatic search, as he calls it, like a checkpoint, is constitutional is that they are general and they avoid arbitrary application. Now, you know, officers aren't bringing to bear all of their authority on one person. They're making sure that they generally search everyone for just a, a short period of time and ask a few questions that aren't likely to elicit an incriminating response. Whereas the kind of targeted stops, suspicionless witness stops that we're talking about, those are more likely to see arbitrary application and possibly discriminatory application because there's no suspicion. In fact, suspicion is necessary for those targeted stops to avoid arbitrariness whereas when you're talking about a programmatic search like those checkpoints, uh, it's actually better if you don't have suspicion because you're not then likely to uh, discriminatorily apply the stops to say brown or black young men of a certain age. Um, so that's that's the the argument is based on the analogy of the ends rather than a proper focus on the difference in the means.
0: I mean, I can, I guess I can understand how, like, if there's going to be a sort of generalized, sort of programmatic, uh, like checkpoint to, like, look to try to solve a problem or, you know, identify a witness or something along those lines, that, like, you know, and the cops come across a drunk person like it's – you know you wouldn't expect them to let the drunk person keep driving just because they weren't looking for drunk people. They were looking for witnesses. But at the same time, it seems like in that context, I can't imagine a court would say, oh, they can stop people for the purpose of looking for a witness. They can have a checkpoint. But at the same time, they can like go through your glove box or check your trunk to see if you have any – Contraband at the same – I mean it seems like that wouldn't fly. So how can it be that kind of stopping people in public just randomly could could be constitutional? Again, you have to think
1: about the way the stops begin and can quickly escalate. It works in a a very similar way to how a stop and frisk can quickly escalate and uncover evidence um, as officers develop more suspicion over the course of whatever conversation they have. Um, you know, suppose that the stopped individual in either a stop and frisk or in a suspicionless witness stop suddenly starts making furtive movements and then officers notice a bulge in their pocket. So they have some reason to fear for their safety and for the safety of those around them. And so that escalates into perhaps enough suspicion for a frisk, for a pat down. And if that immediately becomes apparent that there's contraband or a weapon in that individual's pocket. Now we have probable cause possibly for a full arrest and can seize that evidence again, if it's in their, uh, their plain feel, uh, for use at a later trial. So it's, it's just an entry point is the way to think about it. And especially as stop and frisk policies around the country are at least falling into disfavor, if not being ruled outright unconstitutional, um, This potential end around uh, as another entry point to a number of those encounters where maybe officers kind of can fish and find some additional evidence is a troubling one.
0: Mm. Well, stop me if I'm being cynical here, but I mean it strikes me that it's not that hard for officers to sort of gin up a retrospective suspicion to justify whatever kind of searching Mm -hmm. They seem to want to do. Am am I I wrong? No. And there's
1: a lot of empirical research, at least in the stop and frisk context, that suggests that's exactly what was happening in a lot of cases that officers would either um, later generate the suspicion they would have needed to conduct the stop and frisk or would base it on environmental contextual factors like being in a high crime neighborhood. Or um, noticing furtive movements, or noticing a, a mysterious bulge in one's pocket, that are pretty easy to say were there, whether or not there's specific reasonable suspicion that's beyond a hunch in that particular case. And that's still a possibility, but I think there is a trend away from um, at least systemic application of stop and frisk to again, usually young brown and black populations in a metropolitan area, because of the the bad public perception of that practice. So I think there is something to be said for the fear that officers that are moving away from that tactic for all sorts of kind of public policy or, or political reasons might consider new means of general crime control and suspicionless witness stops are one potential arrow in their quiver.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the concern would always be that Officers would be sort of making things up retrospectively to justify whatever they're doing. But it sounds like the practice that you're describing in the article sort of absolves them of the obligation to come up with any reason for stopping someone other than the fact that, you know, they just want to check people out who happen to be in the neighborhood.
1: That's certainly the concern. And it it will, you know, it it would take some time to see how courts. Um, Because there aren't a lot of developed uh, jurisprudence on this topic to see how courts interpret what becomes a reasonable suspicionless witness stop, you know, how serious the underlying crime that's being investigated would need to be, how much uh, proof officers would need to provide that the individual they're stopping is connected to a specific crime. You know, if you think about it, um, in a lot of ways, that could replace this sort of amorphous high crime neighborhood justification for a Terry stop. If they're focusing on individuals who are usually living in those kinds of neighborhoods and all they need to do is show they've witnessed some other crime, well, every individual in that neighborhood probably has. Um, And so it just becomes a very easy and straightforward way to work around even the kind of paperwork that might be required for a Terry
2: stop.
0: Mm. Well, so how are courts... Reviewing constitutionally these kinds of these kinds of cases, if at all, I mean, are they imposing any kinds of standards on the police who are engaging in this kind of suspicionless witness stop searches? Um, are they ever excluding evidence? Like, sort of, how are how how have courts been thinking about this?
1: The trend, to the extent there is one, is confusion. Uh, courts get these arguments that are suggesting either Lidster checkpoint analogies to apply, that Terry alone should apply, or perhaps some other reasonableness balancing test applies. So in the paper, I go through some examples that apply all three, some sort of mixture, sometimes just Lidster, which usually favors officers, and sometimes just Terry, which will usually favor defendants. Um, it, It often seems to be driven by the... Uh, culpability of the officer's actions, just how extreme their investigation was or what the, what the witness allegedly was a witness to. So for instance, in the Fifth Circuit, a few cases centered around one particular um, fact scenario where members of a family witnessed officers uh, shooting their mentally ill loved one in front of them um, for a whole bunch of other reasons. That may or may not have been a justified shooting, but that's not really the focus here. The point is that officers then handcuffed and detained these family members for several hours, arguing that they were uh, witnesses to the crime and trying to make that Lidster analogy. And at least in those cases where the facts seem pretty extreme, the court is suggesting, yeah, Terry ought to apply here in addition to Lidster, and there's a, a need for officers to have reasonable suspicion that those individuals have committed a crime themselves, not just that they are witnesses to another crime. But in less serious cases, say some cases where um, officers think uh, one individual driving down the road has witnessed another drunk driver, and so they stop the first individual that might just be a witness, and it turns out they were drunk too. Uh, That sort of lower stakes case, you see courts applying Lidster-style Reasonableness balancing. Um, So, part of what the paper is trying to do is call for clarity in analysis to suggest that a robust Terry reasonable suspicion standard ought to apply. And I say that um,
2: not tongue in
1: cheek entirely, because I recognize that a a robust Terry reasonable suspicion standard might not be all that robust at all, but at least it would be stronger uh, than Mm. the kind of uh, balancing test under Lidster
0: that some courts have been attracted to. Yeah. I mean, it seems like something is better than nothing, really.
1: Yeah. In a sense, at least that much, right? Uh, at least requiring yeah. officers to be upfront about what they're doing, that they are attempting to perform the same sorts of crime control tactics that stop and frisk policies in major metropolitan areas have, uh, have undergone over the past few decades.
0: I got to say what you just described struck me as really weird from a Fourth Amendment standpoint that the constitutionality of the stop would depend on the importance of what the officer was trying to accomplish rather than on anything specific to the person they're stopping and searching. I mean that just seems like a weird flex on the Fourth Amendment there. Am, I, am I wrong? I think –
1: the reason that would make sense if it is just applied to checkpoints, and that's where the, that idea comes from, is that you want to control officers from deploying them too often, right? You want to suggest that it's got to be a serious enough crime that they're going to devote this much, this many resources to the problem. And also that you want to make sure it is uh, generalizable, right? You're not trying to stop just the brown and black young men who go past the checkpoint you're either stopping everyone or stopping every third car or some sort of systemic way to avoid arbitrariness and potential bias from creeping into those stops and so in that sense it's it's better if you don't have particularized suspicion of individuals but instead you're just trying to accomplish some broader public good solving some major unsolved crime in the area
0: Well, so maybe you could, you know, in in the paper you frame this problem not only as kind of a abstract Fourth Amendment issue, but also as a social policy problem and a sort of tool that police maybe can or even are using to facilitate racial profiling. I wonder if you could talk a little bit. About how these practices are perceived in the communities in which the police are using them and how they might affect the legitimacy of policing.
1: To the extent that officers are well meaning and, and genuinely want to control crime in the neighborhoods they patrol, the tactics here are really self defeating. Um, you know, the well meaning officer working in a community where they hope to solve a lot of unsolved crime. And witnesses are reticent to come forward because for, uh, for many, the possibility of interacting with the police always carries the possibility of an eventual arrest and charge against you no matter what, whether you were the victim of crime yourself and are simply reporting it or whether you're being investigated for a crime of your own. So there's already so much distrust of officers in some of these communities that I I would suggest some officers maybe are well-meaning. They really just want to get more witnesses to help them solve more crimes and end that cycle. But using suspicionless witness stops is only going to perpetuate that kind of distrust. As witnesses see that their own liberty is under threat whenever they're discussing another crime with officers because they might eventually... Uh, become the subject of a, of a separate investigation, which can happen through these suspicionless witness stops, you're going to get even fewer witnesses coming forward voluntarily to solve major crimes. And that way it's very counterproductive. You know, uh, more unsolved crimes motivate the well-intentioned officer to find more witnesses. But if you're doing it through this blunt tool, which scares witnesses even more, the cycle continues in a negative direction And we're going to have continually unsolved crimes with few witnesses willing to talk.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, so to what extent, if at all, have courts been pushing back on these practices? And do you anticipate this suspicionless witness stop question to be, you know, Coming up more before courts, maybe even coming up to the Supreme Court at some point. I mean, it sounds like something that the Supreme Court would want to address. Um, And I don't know if we will see that
1: yet. There's nothing in the pipeline that suggests it's imminent. I do think we'll see it some more in courts. And that's a big part of the audience for the paper. I want to, you know, it, it. if it gets to if the practice becomes common enough that it's known more in the in in sort of our popular culture that this is something officers will do um, we've reached a critical mass that i'm hoping we can avoid that that at least at the lower court level um, suggesting that a robust reasonable suspicion of individual criminal activity is required before you can stop an individual might Prohibit the growth of this suspicionless witness stop practice before it gets to that critical mass. Um, but you know, another way that this could be all averted quickly is if there's the right vehicle to get it to the Supreme Court and get a, a strong ruling in that way. Um, again, that that requires the court to recognize that one of the reasons Lidster uh, Lidster style uh, police checkpoints. Were constitutional, which isn't explicit in the opinion, is, again, their generalized nature. It's not just the fact that they're after witnesses, but because it's done in a clearly non-arbitrary fashion. You're stopping everyone. It's very public. Everyone can see that they and their neighbor and the car behind them are all being stopped, so it's not just focused on one individual. And the interaction is quick and not designed to elicit self-incriminating information. Were you here last week when this... um, when this hit-and-run accident occurred, as opposed to particularized questions of one individual whom the full weight of the state is coming down on, and those questions, in fact, are very likely to elicit an incriminating response. Um, will it be, you know, uh, court responses haven't been as robust as I'd hoped, and that's part of why I wrote the paper. I'm hoping to, to draw attention to the phenomenon and get at least um, judicial ears raised, uh about future cases that might come up. My my honest hope is that it never comes to that kind of critical mass where it becomes such a large issue that it requires a Supreme Court ruling to solve. I'm kind of hoping to convince courts and maybe even convince uh actors on the police force that this just isn't the way to go.
0: Mm, mm. Well so I mean I understand that data might be a little thin at this point, but to the extent you have a sense of it, like how common is this practice at this point? Is it more common in some areas than other, or is it kind of spread more generally across the United
1: States? So what I can tell you is that the argument based on analogies to Lidster, it's not common, but it does come up. Um, now, that analogy might come up in a, in a case that's not the kind of suspicionless witness stop of one individual, as you see in my example about an individual just west of uh, Wrigley Field in Chicago. Uh, empirically, my evidence is mostly anecdotal and a lot of it is based on, on practice in Chicago. I have heard of this practice popping up mostly in major metropolitan areas. Um, but I don't have hard empirical data to say how widespread it is. And to be honest, I think that's a good thing (laughs) because I'm not, (laughs) I'm not yet worried that it's gotten such uh, a large audience or such a receptive audience amongst officers who are trying to, you know, Uh, show that they're doing something to control crime in these neighborhoods. That's my fear is, is that it will, if we don't sound the alarm now. Um, But I haven't, I haven't collected enough uh, empirical data to say with confidence, just how frequent it is. Um, It's, it's a scary, a scary trend to say the least. And it certainly is the type of practice that has such low costs, right? Officers, can justify this kind of suspicionless witness stop very easily. They conduct it without devoting a lot of resources in terms of manpower or time to doing so, that I can see how it would become a tempting alternative to stop and frisk very quickly. I don't think it's there yet, but I'm hoping to sound the alarm before that happens.
0: Mm. Well, so in the paper, you propose a few kind of doctrinal or legal fixes to sort of minimize some of the risks associated with this procedure. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how you think we might or courts might sort of reconceptualize the legitimacy of these kinds of stops or the sort of procedural protections surrounding them in a way that would limit their kind of the ability of police to use them in in inappropriate ways.
1: So one of the things that I I suggest, again, I want to acknowledge – To solve crime in some of these neighborhoods that officers are patrolling, right? Um, And that if an officer really wants to encourage witnesses to come forward, what those witnesses need is some assurance that whatever statements they make or whatever evidence might be uncovered in the course of that conversation, where they're just helping officers solve an unsolved crime, isn't going to be used against them at a later trial. So I propose a couple of, of options there. One is for local jurisdictions to. To legislate some form of immunity, some form of use immunity for witnesses who are stopped without uh, suspicion, uh, so that potentially the statements that they make can't be used in a future prosecution against them. And I've also argued that perhaps there could be a constitutional rule of kind of self executing use immunity for witnesses who are stopped without suspicion, because in a sense, those witnesses are speaking in response to a show of force and are giving what could be considered a somewhat compelled statement. So if they're forced to reveal self-incriminating information, maybe those witnesses should automatically be enveloped with some protection, at least against the use or derivative use of their statements at a later trial against them. So if this technique becomes commonplace, At least some protections could be put in place to avoid um, scaring so many witnesses off that it's self-defeating and to actually control some crime in neighborhoods that need this service the
0: most. Mm -hmm. Well, so let's hope we don't get there. But in closing, (laughs) Mike, I was wondering – If you could maybe provide some practical advice for listeners who might find themselves um, confronted by police under these circumstances. So like if a a police officer approaches you and wants to ask you questions as a potential witness to a crime or someone who might know something about a crime, what should people do? Um, So I don't have the best uh, Ten
1: Commandments as Paul Butler at the University of Georgetown has put together for – individuals who are stopped by officers but most of most of the suggestions that I'll paraphrase there are uh, just be quiet uh, you know be respectful uh, if officers ask your name you can provide your name and otherwise say I'm not interested in talking am I free to leave and if officers suggest that they are detaining you that you will be seized immediately assert your rights to remain silent and to speak to an attorney um, but again, The idea behind a suspicionless witness stop is to avoid that kind of escalation. So uh, officers are hoping to uncover evidence quickly before someone can assert those protections. And establishing whether you're free to leave and if you're not, immediately invoking uh, sort of Miranda constitutional protections is probably your best bet.
0: Cool. Well, thanks a lot, Mike. I mean, I really appreciate you sending me the paper, which was – It's a great paper, and I can't believe this is happening. And I'm really (laughs) glad you're bringing it to people's attention.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm a a fan of the of the podcast, and thrilled to be on it.
2: When I was a boy, I wanted to be a policeman in my community, to wear a star and a uniform and have a car with a big loud horn. This was the life for me, I thought, back when I was a boy. I went to school and studied hard. I wanted to learn the rules to guard. When I grew up, they let me in and gave me a place as one of them. I had reached my lifelong plan to become a policeman. My first real job was the big convention The Democrats held for their nomination There was trouble expected, we knew From hippies and yippies and communists too They'd take over and vowed they would They were after our blood The hippies were dirty, the yippies were vile ¶ The commies were there to keep them riled ¶¶ The mayor didn't want Chicago ruined ¶¶ And that's what they were intent on They hate America and all that's good ¶¶ But they call it love ¶¶ They raised the flag of the Viet Cong ¶¶ How could these kids have gone so wrong ¶ To aid the Kong who's killing their brothers, destroying us from within our borders. They hit us in waves with their weapons of war, with spikes, bottles, blades, our flesh they tore. We herded them on down Michigan Ave It's a good thing riot equipment we have We were trained to handle such mobs That is part of our job Police brutality was their moan Joined by announcers for the viewers at home They know police have got to go So their leaders can seize control We do our job the best we can As Chicago policemen Your help to the police is really needed If the laws are to be heeded Mobs like these we can't let roam To ruin our country churches and homes Americans all across the land Support your local policeman